number one, there's a quote from Dr. Marshall Goldsmith. He's a really smart psychologist. And he said that if you do not create and control your environment, your environment creates and controls you. So that's, that's one. Like, point number one is that most people are unaware of how their environment is shaping them. You know, they're, they're what we would call living reactively rather than living proactively. If you're proactive, you create situations. Welcome to The Ziggler Show, where we inspire your true performance. I'm your host, Kevin Miller. Today, we bring you Ben Hardy. He has a new book titled, Willpower Doesn't Work. Friends, this is a profound, really profound message. Who has not gotten frustrated at their lack of willpower? I mean, setting goals, having desires, trying to achieve something, and then not coming through or not going to the length that we wanted to and feeling like a failure. We all wish we had more discipline and more willpower. I mean, that's just common as anything in the self-help personal development world. Well, Ben takes a hard line and paradigm shifting view to say relying on willpower is the wrong solution. What is a solution? Well, listen in. You'll be mesmerized to hear Ben focus on how we can design our environment for success and no longer rely on our grit and willpower. Ben's the number one writer for medium.com and just a masterful writer and communicator. And it comes from research. This isn't just his opinion. Uh, You literally don't want to miss this show. Over the past three years, Ben's work has been read by over 50 million people and he's grown his email list from zero to over 320,000 people without paid advertising. You can connect with him and check out his book at benjaminhardy.com. Real quick, before I bring you, Ben, I want to personally invite you to the Elevating Entrepreneurs Summit. This month, my friend Deb Johnstone has put together a free online event with 25 experts, including myself, to help entrepreneurs experience more time and money freedom. I mean, there's no end to information on entrepreneurship available. I'm I'm well aware of that, but this is why I agree to be part of the event. Instead of hearing one person's take on entrepreneurial success that fits them but may not fit you, Deb has compiled 25 really successful entrepreneurs representing different ages, gender, background, products, and services, even nationalities. Uh, Each expert is going to give their high-level counsel on the unconscious patterns that keep us stuck and how to stop those patterns. Our most successful marketing, public relations, and sales strategy will share our favorite tools and overall just focus on how to have a successful, consistent business that doesn't overtake your life. It helps support the lifestyle you believe is best for you. It happens March 12, 2018. It's free, and all 25 expert entrepreneurs were required to provide a highly valuable and free gift to all the attendees as well. So register now at zigshow.com slash elevate. That's zigshow.com slash elevate. Okay, friends, here then is a profound and liberating conversation with Ben Hardy on why willpower doesn't work. Okay, Ben, well, just honored to have you here with us today. And uh, I saw in your bio, uh, and you actually had me at, one of your priorities is eating great food. So we're going to start off on a serious note. I want to know about a recent memorable meal. Okay. Uh, I mean, we were just literally in Disney World because my wife and I just adopted our three foster kids last week. Uh, we've had these foster kids for three years, and last week we were granted adoption and so, pretty amazing. We we went to Disney. I can't say I'm in love with the food at Disney, but uh, we did eat some good food. As far as memorable meals, um, my wife and I, last year in 2017 when I was writing the book, we interviewed one of the chefs. So, we watch a show called um, Chef's Table. Have you ever seen that? 
I have not. Huh? Chef's Table is one of the best shows on Netflix. It's like one of those Netflix original documentaries and um, just brilliant. And one of the chefs that they highlighted. So they, they go over the top 50 restaurants in the world, you know, and they go through like the story of how the person became who they were. And then it talks about the restaurant, and the menu and stuff. And one of the people who, uh, so it turns out that in Lima, Peru, it's like one of the food cap. It's definitely the food capital of South America, but, uh, Lima has three of the top 50 restaurants in the world in it. And so my wife and I, we decided we would go down there and go to one of those restaurants. And I got to interview one of the people. Uh, his name is Virgilio. And uh, I forget his last name off the top of my head, but his restaurant's called Central. And so we ate there. It's like a three-hour meal. You know what I mean? And it's just so insane. Seven, 17 courses, uh, best bread I've ever eaten, best butter. I mean, it's just like, it'll blow your mind. And so... Uh, yeah, I like doing stuff like that. I mean, even when we were in Vegas recently, we we like using like Yelp and stuff to find places. We ate at one of the top Mexican restaurants in the U.S. and it's not that even expensive. It has one Michelin star and it's like right in Vegas, you know. And so it's kind of fun just to find places, and it doesn't have to be expensive, just kind of finding spots. We were. I was just in Vegas with my wife, and we did some restaurant hopping. I, I just have realized food is such a hobby and a passion. Cooking, I never intended it to be. I just, I love it, and uh, and and I really like people who like food. If they don't like food, have a passion for it. I just, it's hard to resonate. So thank you for that. Well, so okay, you stole my thunder. I was going to kind of weave into this story of you. Oh, well, you showcase that a lot of the motivation, which we're going to talk about here. It, for writing this book came from this experience that you had with these foster kids. And yeah, I was tipped off that literally, I think days ago, you guys got a, a gigantic fruition of this journey in, uh, in the adoption coming through. I know part of that world, that is huge. And, and nobody, uh, if you haven't been through foster care and adoption and all that process, there's no way to know the heartache of that. And so you guys have experienced it to a big level. Tell us a little bit about it, but also I want to know why, how that came into the motivation to write this tremendous book that you have. Thank you, man. So, uh, yeah, it, every situation is different, and some states have different laws, but the foster care system is really broken in most most places. The employees there are not very motivated people. I mean, a lot of them do really – I mean, it's a hard job, but they're operating under a different set of rules than are often – in alignment with what is in the best interest of the kids. You know, they've got rules and things like that. They've got things that they need to do. And so it can create a conflict where they're doing things to appease the rules of kind of their their organization or their culture, but it's actually getting in the way of what their job actually is, which is to help other kids. And so we, in our situation, we got our foster kids in January of 2015, uh, and have been fighting for him pretty much ever since. And uh, finally, it came through with the adoption against all odds. Um, and uh, why, you know, it, it's been one of the most amazing experiences of, of my life. Kind of really changed my approach to the world, changed who I am, changed how I, you know, it allowed me to be a lot more patient and compassionate and things like that. And so, you know, how did it influence and, and inspire me to write the book? Well, you know, when you take three kids from a really broken situation, you know, and you put them into a, into a diff, a very different environment, there's going to be a conflict, right? They're, like it shatters things. And so we had to figure out how to help these kids and the kids had to figure out how to adapt to the environment. Um, and so 
you know, what willpower doesn't work is all about is how who you are in one situation is different from who you are in a different situation. It's very different from the Western perspective. You know, in the Western world, we're very individualistic. And so we think that, you know, who you are is some intrinsic, you know, isolated entity, you know, that you're who you are when you're born is who you're going to be when you die. Um, when my viewpoint, the viewpoint of my research, my experience, and kind of my just life is that, uh, you know, people are very fluid, they can change, they can adapt, and that, you know, when you start to become more mindful of your environment, you can start to create powerful environments and situations that allow you to rise up or to become new and different. And there's a quote from uh, William Durant, he's a famous historian, and he said that the ability of the average person could be doubled if their situation demanded it. But most people's situation isn't demanding them to be more. And if you think about most people's jobs, like there's not high consequence for failure. There's not a big amount of responsibility. There's not immediate feedback. There's not intense challenge. Like a lot of people's work is just, you know, if they didn't do a good job that day, there's not really a big impact on, on the bottom line or on their self. And so, um, yeah, there was a lot of inspiration and then just studying psychology and things like that. Um, through my PhD, I've really began to appreciate the value of context or environment and situations and how those things influence us. Well, so I have not had this discussion in, in, in a while on being a product of your environment. I grew up with that perspective, but then in having kids, um, our, our biological kids, and see how they just come out so different from the womb was amazing. But now today, I have a five-year-old who, uh, for a year and a half now, we don't, we haven't adopted. It's from a, a Native American reservation. Probably never will. We have custody, and we expect she'll be with us forever. And seeing the damage that was done to her early on, and to see after a year and a half, some significant changes. I mean, dramatic changes, but also some handicaps that I don't know. Uh, it's daunting. It's incredibly daunting to, to look at. And as you talk about a product of our environment, talk a little bit. And gosh, I'm jumping the gun. I wanted to get into some of your personal story, but we're right here already. And this is the meat of your of your book, being a product of your environment. There's so many of us. Here we are. We're an aspiring group. Tens of thousands of people are listening to this in the Ziegler audience. And they're they're hearing this. They want more things. They want to progress. And yet, as you know, they're handicapped to some degrees from their, from their past. They want to go forward and there's, there's that tension. Uh, I don't know, help us out right there from the get go of looking at it and going, yeah, we've got some stuff from the past. We want to go forward. Uh, we are products of our environment to some degree and gosh, you know, step one, I mean, of course, go get the book, but help us out a little bit here. And yeah, yeah, this is good stuff. You, you're, you're really hitting some cool points. And so, number one, there's a quote from Dr. Marshall Goldsmith. He's a really smart psychologist. And he said that if you do not create and control your environment, your environment creates and controls you. So that's that's one. Like, point number one is that most people are unaware of how their environment is shaping them. You know, they're, they're what we would call living reactively rather than living proactively. If you're proactive, you create situations. You know, even, uh, you know, a lot of research in positive psychology talks about optimists view situations differently. Like, in, uh, what, what's the opposite of an optimist? A 
Pessimist. Pessimists, when something goes wrong, they immediately start pointing at themselves and saying, I'm just not good, or I can't do this. An optimist, if something goes wrong, they start to think about how the situation influenced why it didn't go well. And they start to think, how can I change situational factors so that things can go more in my favor? Obviously, a big part of that's themselves, their own skills, but that's part of the situation is, you know, what do I need to do differently? Or how can I manipulate the situation? Or how can I do... Optimists are, I think, th- optimists are thinking about how they can alter things for their benefit, whereas pessimists... They think in terms of like, I just can't do this. It's 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 permanent. It's not changeable. Um, and so when when you were talking about like the idea of you know the child, for example, being a product of a rough situation and bringing that in and how that can kind of make things difficult, daunting, maybe even you know you have this fear that it may be permanent and unsurmountable. There's a really good book uh, that's recently getting some steam. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's all about trauma, PTSD. You know, and it talks about how really all of us have experienced trauma <laughs> at very diff- differing levels. Yeah, and, we've, and when you experience trauma, you hold on to that. It's actually a different way of storing memories. So most of us, when we have memories, we, those memories are social, they're contextual, and they're fluid. Like when you have new experiences in life, they reshape your memories of the past. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Inside Out, but it kind of talks about that. Like when you have new experiences, it alters your memories. And that's a healthy thing. Memories should be fluid, not fixed. And the problem with traumatic experiences is that those memories become isolated. They're not social. They're not contextual. They're not fluid. They become isolated and fixed and you get stuck. And so what happens with traumatic experiences, maybe like your child has gone through is that there's a side of your child that's stuck in this emotion and it's suppressed emotions, it's trauma, and it, it needs to come out in order for them to get past that that stuckness. So, so no, there's another idea that's presented in the book, which is, I think, very relevant in, um, you know, with what I talk about and willpower doesn't work, but it's this idea that we actually all have multiple personalities. So there's certain sides of you that are very mature. They're very elevated. They're awesome. There's other sides of you that are very immature. <laughs> and like when those sides are triggered, maybe you don't know how to cope. Maybe you don't know what to do. You know, there's certain sides of you that, you know, and in the book I talk about learning styles. We all have a dominant learning style where there's certain things that you just are good at doing or that you like doing. And you put yourself in situations where you can use those learning styles more often. And there's other learning styles. So like some of the learning styles are like analyzing or planning or thinking or acting. Um, and there's certain things you have gotten really good at doing, and so you put yourself in situations where you can do those more and more, and you avoid situations where you have to do stuff you're uncomfortable with. For example, myself, I'm not very good at mechanics. I've spent a ton of time in academia, a ton of time in business, but I'm not very good going outside and working on my car, and my wife hates me for it sometimes. It's not that I can't learn mechanics. It's literally that I have underdeveloped you know, brain chemistry and underdeveloped learning styles and, and a lack of confidence. So like what the research says is that it's not confidence that creates success. It's success that creates confidence. You know what I mean? It's also, it's not your personality that shapes your behavior, especially as you get older and older, it's your behavior that shapes your personality. So if I wanted to get really good at mechanics, I actually probably could. I would just need to engage in it, you know, kind of like uh, in a deliberate practice style way. You know, you'd need to like actually like, you know, probably actually if, if I really wanted to learn mechanics, which I really don't, I would need to like probably you know, hire someone to train me on how to do it. When you hire someone, you become financially invested. You put yourself around a mentor. You'd need to have, I would need some incentive to actually do it, but I could do it. I just have learning muscles in those muscles in those areas. Um, But kind of going back to the daughter thing, number one, 
Well, so think about it this way. A lot of people think when, when someone goes through a, like a traumatic experience that it can alter their personality f- permanently, right? So like we have this belief system culturally that if someone goes into some experience and it's extremely traumatic, it can permanently alter their personality. But what we don't focus on is the fact that you can do the opposite of that. You can help people have positive experiences and you can alter their experience for the, or, or their personality for the, for the good. And I think that that's what anyone seeking personal development is all about is they're seeking ways to permanently improve and enhance themselves. And we totally downplay that perspective and we're all, we, I think it's become very culturally acceptable understanding that, yeah, people, if they go through traumatic experiences, it could potentially be a f- permanent thing. But we don't think about the opposite, that you can also have powerful positive experiences that can permanently enhance you. So you're in essence saying if you have a trauma, if you have a a bad uh, incident, you have this bad programming in essence, you have have a trauma, it exists there, that your tactic in addressing that is let's go counter that with a positive? Well, so kind of going back to memory, you know. Those type of experiences are actually isolated. You know, they're stored differently in the memory. They're isolated. They're not fluid like most memories. And there's a quote that basically says, You're, you are as sick as your secrets. You know, so basically when it comes to suppressed emotions and things like that, most people, if they go through a really hard experience, like for example, a lot of women, the numbers are really high. Like the numbers are like in the 30s percents or more that like at least 30% of women are going to be sexually abused in their life. It's a horrible fact. And most women, if you tell them that, they would actually say, I believe it's more. But what most people don't do is they don't talk about it. If you go through a traumatic experience of any type, most people don't ever talk about it with anyone. They keep it secret. And that's why it gets stored in your memory in a different way. And that's why your personality gets frozen in those areas and doesn't develop. So personality is something that should continually be developed. It's not some fixed characteristic that you're born with. It should continually change. Um, and so I think number one is actually, you know, you need, you know, you need an environment where you can actually let those things out. You know, you need people around you who are compassionate, who can help you work through and understand those emotions. And then when you are a person, and I talk about it in the book, seeking radical upgrades in like, let's just say your mindset or in your success, you need to become a lot more proactive about dealing with your, you know, your suppressed or limiting emotions and, and beliefs, you know, so like, if you're wanting to go from making like, you know, 50,000 to six figures, for example, you got to take on a lot more responsibility. If you do that, of course, you're going to be faced with a lot of like fear or, you know, anxiety or things like that. Some of those other sides of underdeveloped components of you are going to be triggered. They're going to be forced to come up and be dealt with and developed. And so, you know, a lot of it's just focusing on facing a lot of the emotions that we're avoiding and, you know, you got to have a lot of good social support and help to do that. Well, I, I'm, I'm heavily involved in the health and wellness industry and, and functional medicine is a specific thing that I'm involved with. And, it, and it's part of getting to the root cause, not dealing with the symptoms like our healthcare system does, but getting to the root cause. So in that same way, I really feel like you're, you're doing this. You, I mean, you just said a minute ago in my bad paraphrasing as I was trying to do notes real quick, but that success breeds confidence, not confidence breeding success. That's not how we generally come about it, but it's just like your book where you're saying willpower won't work. And when you, I mean, I was intrigued from the moment that you said that, because that is how we are programmed to think that's how we are taught to think. Even in this personal development world where, I mean, the aspect of discipline comes up constantly. If I was just more disciplined, which you talk directly at the book and it's a very 
contrarian view, not for contrarian sake, but you're just saying, no, we're, we're missing it. We're chopping at the right uh, or the wrong root. So, I mean, so let's dig in at a high level. If you're giving your elevator pitch on why willpower won't work for most people, that's going to put them in a tailspin because that's all we have ever been fed to believe. Yeah, we're fed to believe it because we're very individualistic. We put all the pressure on ourselves. And most people, they have, to use, they have to use willpower because their environment is pushing against them. What psychologists say is that almost all behavior is outsourced by their environment. So like, let's just say, for example, you know, you're on an airplane. Are you going to smoke a cigarette if you're on an airplane? No, you can't. Your behavior is outsourced to an environment. There's rules in every environment. Well, most people's environments are literally pushing against them. And so they have to continually, you know, consciously control their behavior. And that's what psychologists call decision fatigue. That's willpower. You actually have to think about what you're doing and resist some form of pressure, internally or externally. Uh, Whereas there's other environments that literally pull you forward. You can jump in it and it pulls you forward and it's like high-performance motivation, those things you don't even need to think about because the situation demands it of you. Um, and so from my perspective, willpower exists for one of a few reasons. Number one is because you haven't fully determined what you want to do. If you're So like there's a quote from the Harvard uh, business professor, Clayton Christensen, and he says that 100% commitment is easier than 98% commitment. When you're 98% committed to something, you still have to like decide in every moment if you're going to do something. If you're 98% committed, you're not going to like eat cookies or eat sugar. Then like in every situation you're in, you have to plague yourself to like decide if you're going to do it or not. That's willpower. 100% commitment says the decision's already been made. So like Michael Jordan said, once I made a decision, I never thought about it again. So part one of willpower is, is that you don't know what you want. You haven't actually made a decision. So there's internal conflict. There's internal debate. And then, uh, you know, part two is that your environment opposes your values and goals. If you're constantly in an environment that's pushing against you and not pulling you the direction you want to go, then you'll always have to be thinking about your behavior and thinking about what you want. I think what's really conscious and high level is first off, decide what you want and then create the conditions that make it just happen. Create the, you know, surround yourself with the types of people that will help you move forward. My belief is that, you know, for the most part, most people are most people can definitely upgrade themselves. They're just putting all the pressure on themselves rather than recognizing that their environment's playing an enormous role. And thanks to these sponsors for bringing us today's show. Okay, so in that, you just said creating the conditions to pull you forward so that when you make a decision, that's, you know, then you shouldn't have to rely on willpower where does, where do consequences come in to this? I mean, it's one thing to create the conditions to pull me forward, to make the decision that I am not going to eat sugar because I want this goal. And then the night comes and you make a bad choice to sit down in front of the TV. And then that hankering comes for that addiction that we have of putting something sugary in our mouth. And that's where we get caught up in that willpower. But tell us how you're seeing that different or, or designing that differently. Yeah, so in the book, I talk about two types of optimal environments. I call them enriched environments in the book. One is high stress, high pressure, and the other one is high rest, high recovery. Uh, if you've ever studied Dan Sullivan, his work at Strategic Coach, he talks about focus days and free days, and it's really similar, but in this case, I'm talking about situations. So, you know, in high, high pressure and high demand situations, you're fully engaged, fully absorbed in what you're doing. You experience what psychologists call flow. And the only way to experience flow is if the situational trick, if the situation is set up for flow. 
So for flow to exist, you've got to have immediate feedback. You got to have difficulty. You got to have newness. You've got to have consequences for behavior. Like the reason why extreme athletes can experience flow is because there's immediate beha- there's immediate feedback and there's high consequence for failure, right? Like if you fall and you're in a huge half pipe, you could get really hurt. Um, so in the book The Millionaire Next Door, the two professors who performed the study said that the people who become most affluent are the ones who are paid based on performance, not just based on like a salary. So obviously for people who are seeking high performance, you know, you want to do a job where you're getting paid based on what you actually achieve, not just on the time you spend on the clock. So those are two very different worldviews. One is called like the time and effort category and one is the results economy. So, you know, when it comes to, let's just say work, the field of work, you know, you want to look at your job and, you know, you want to, most people's work situations are, are, are set up for not being in flow. Their environments are set up for distraction. They've got multiple tabs open. They've got their cell phone next to their desk. If they don't perform well, they're not going to get in trouble. They could feasibly watch a YouTube video here and there. There's never really a demand for them to be in flow. You know, there's not a pressing timeline. Like, I mean, maybe those things pop up every once in a while, but what you want to do is if you want to like continually upgrade in your work, you want to have the responsibility of that growth. You want to continually put yourself in situations or create conditions that are forcing you forward. And so I, 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 uh, I use the example of John Burke. He's actually a pianist in Atlanta. And, um, you know, he was recently nominated for an Emmy. He's 29 years old. And what he does is that whenever he comes up with a new idea for writing an album, you know, as soon as he gets the idea, he calls his sound engineer and he schedules himself to be at the studio three months in advance, three to six months. And then he pays to for his time slot there. So he becomes, you know, on the schedule wise, he becomes committed that in six, in three to six months, I'm going to be recording this album, which I've never even written yet. It's just in my head that I want to do it. And then he becomes financially invested, which makes him more and more committed to it. And then he goes to his schedule and he maps out on a weekly basis. He plans in time to create the music that he, you know, to compose it and write it and learn how to play it. And then he creates more social pressure. He starts calling his fans or telling his fans on social media that he's working on a new album and that it's going to be out this date. And he says he really values his, you know, his uh, fans' like loyalty. And so when he tells them he's going to do something, he feels the pressure to do it. And so he's like financially invested. And then he starts, you know, then he starts working on it. And so he creates these external conditions that create a lot of pressure on him to move forward and succeed. And so that's kind of like, how do you make it, how do you create the increasing stakes, you know, and take on increasing levels of responsibility and get paid what, what you earn rather than just get paid for time? I mean, so I think that you just want to put yourself in situations where you're kind of forced into the moment where you have to rise up to an intense challenge you've never succumbed before, you know? And then on the opposite side, what is the other type of enriched environment? It's high recovery. So there's a concept in psychology called psychological detachment from work. And basically what it means is that if you can't fully disengage from work, like physically, mentally, and emotionally, and like literally just plug into other areas of your life, you're going to have a really hard time getting into flow when you're at work. So, you know, in one situation, you should be totally on, totally absorbed, totally focused. And in the other, you should be totally off, like not distracted by work. So Dan Sullivan says that either you're in a focused day or you're in a free day. And on a free day, if you get a single text message about work and you see it, the free day doesn't count anymore. Like you need to be totally unplugged and have fun. And, and, and there's all sorts of research on sabbaticals and taking time off and stuff like that and how that's best for creativity. 
and uh, and it talks about how 16% of creative ideas happen while you're at work. Most creative ideas happen when you're away from work, relaxing, recovering. You know, and in the fitness area, it's like if you've pushed yourself intensely on like a on some fitness challenge, the growth actually happens, and further growth happens if you give yourself plenty of recovery. And so the idea is, is just you want to create these two types of optimal environments so that you're rising up to challenges and you're totally resting and recovering because it's when you're resting that you're growing and it's when you're resting that you're going to be able to get the clarity to take on bigger and bigger challenges. Yeah, which again, you're, you're Mr. Contrarian here today because it's just the opposite of our busy culture who's go, 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 go and never stops to refuel. And yet we keep hearing that, that message. I want to I ask you about the environment. Obviously, in the book, you are doing a lot in regards to helping us look at our environment, plan our environment, kind of like a lifestyle design aspect. And I got to say, I, you know, I, I, my first, this brought me a lot back to Dan Buettner, uh, the blue zones who wrote a book about the healthiest places in the world. And what he really boiled down to is what is the best way to be healthy, be in a community that fosters health. And now you're bringing it almost in, in, into a more tangible way of literal lifestyle design. But before going into some of those things, where are the ways that we're just kind of the low hanging fruit? Where are we culturally missing it the most in designing our environment from a proactive reactive type aspect? You just talked a minute ago that most of us we're at work or we're, we're working. We've got all our tabs open. We have our email open. We have our phone next to us. We're doing these things. And you're saying that is not fostering an environment to help you <laughs> succeed. So kind of hit some high levels, literally as we're all listening here, where are the high level pieces where generally most of us are missing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think that the recovery component, like you've said, is so countercultural. So like taking time to rest and recover mentally, emotionally, physically. So like on the physical level, we hear a lot about intermittent fasting these days or fasting from food for like, let's just say 18 to 24 hour periods of time. What happens when you fast? You literally allow your body to reset and heal. That same thing happens when you actually detach yourself from work. And so like what I would say is, so there's a quote that I really love. It's basically wherever you are, that's where you should be. And so the idea is like you have kids. You've already told me you've had kids. How many times do you actually leave your phone away from your person when you're with your kids? Like maybe leave it at your computer desk. You don't need it. It'll be there tomorrow. Like give yourself permission to actually unplug and actually fully engage at home. If your phone is on your body, I guarantee there's willpower involved. You know, that is setting up your environment for distraction and for a lack of flow and Dan Sullivan, who's a brilliant guy, he would say, you could never call that a free day. You're not fully present with your loved ones. You know what I mean? It's like you're kind of semi-in, semi-out. That's the opposite of what we're talking about here. What we're saying is is at work, you should be fully on or wherever you are, fully on, and you should then be fully off. And so I think some low-hanging fruit are just, you know, I think the biggest addictions in the world today are, are work, technology, stimulants food, you know, and then other addictions. But like the low hanging fruit for most people is their, their relationship with food, with work and with technology. You know, it's like if you can't control the technology, the technology is controlling you and your technology is a part of your environment, you know? And so you've got to take control of that, you know, delete the apps off your phone that are just worthless, you know, like actually take control of your phone, uh, leave your phone off your person as much as you can. Like, I think that that's going to be kind of one of the ways in the future where people say, are you actually living is how much time are you not staring at your device? You know, if you can leave your phone off your body and actually engage in the real world with your family rather than just staring at screens, that's pretty powerful. Um, 
And then when it comes to work, like actually give yourself time off, like give yourself rules where you're going to work in certain times. And, uh, what's interesting. So a component I talk about in the book, there's a concept called forcing functions, basically, which means you create these situational factors that force you to act how you want to be. Uh, there's an entrepreneur, I I forget his name now. I wrote about him in the book, but one of the things he does is a forcing function to kind of keep himself in flow is he goes and he works, um, you know, in certain environments, he goes to like the library or something on days that he writes and he literally leaves his power cable at home. He knows that when he goes to work and he's got his computer with no power cable, his computer is literally going to die in three hours. So like that keeps him in flow. Like he's like, okay, I've got like three hours. Once the computer dies, I'm done. Like, give yourself the permission to be done when you're done and just go home. Like, for so much of us, we uh, we just, we're so unconscious with our time and our addiction to technology that we realize, we don't realize the increment, like, the five minutes that we waste here, the ten minutes we waste there. Um, and I think it's it's really smart to put factors in place where you're like, no, once this time limit's up, I'm done. And then I'm leaving my phone in my car and I'm going to go relax when I'm at the gym, I'm going to be at the gym. When I'm not at the gym, I'm not going to be at the gym. So I think a lot of it's just being present and really thinking about your relationship to a few of these things. Okay, so it's curious. I mean, we talk so much about being proactive versus being, versus being reactive. We all want to be that mature, disciplined, full of willpower person that can make the mature choice, that can have the computer that's fully plugged in. There's no limit on it, but we can just be disciplined and stick to our timeline as opposed to being reactionary, which we tend to naturally be as humans. And it feels like in this, you are to a degree manufacturing reactionary, being able to be reactionary. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, so the, the, you know, this, this hits the very question of, is it choice or is it environment? You know what I mean? Like, is it nature or is it nurture? And for me, we obviously have choices. Human beings are very powerful creatures. We can make choices. I think the smartest decision people can make is to choose the environment and create the situations that will that that will end up creating them. Um, so yeah, I mean it's not about being proactive or reactive. Like basically, to me, being proactive is creating conditions that allow you to succeed. It's you're being proactive when you're shaping your environment. You know, it's not like you're being reactive, but you you do realize once you become aware of it, how much the environment is influencing you. It's kind of like Jim Rohn. You know, Jim Rohn, he always said, you know, like, don't put yourself in among, um, among an easy crowd because you won't grow. Surround yourself with people where the expectations and the, and the demands for high performance are high. When you put yourself around certain types of people, you don't need willpower. The expectations just force you forward. That's the forcing function. It's a concept in psychology called the Pygmalion effect. So like basically what it means is that we're always rising to or falling down to the expectations of those around us. If you surround yourself with, you know, high level people, and it's like if people are listening to this podcast, they are controlling their environment. Like this is part of their environment. They're listening to it on their headphones or in their car. They're influencing themselves by influencing their environment. They're putting new inputs in their head so that they can then behave and think differently. So it's just deciding what kind of person do I want to be and what's the environment or the influences that are going to shape that or that are going to allow me to do that. Okay, so come back to – I want to come back to the aspect of of motivation because you talk about that so much – you know, in the book. And as we look at these, again, this lifestyle design and, and making that decision, coming back to like what you said about Michael Jordan, you know, he made a decision. He didn't think about it again, but on motivation, 
where do you find as we are all, yeah, like you talked about it, we're an audience right here. This is an aspiring crowd or they wouldn't be here listening to this in the, in the, in the first place. But where do you find people where you say, obviously the motivation is just not enough. Is there a point where we have to kind of grasp that and say, you've got to figure out a way to increase that motivation or you're going to be stuck just with willpower? Well, I mean, so for me, let's just say a lot of people, for example, ask me, where do I get my inspiration to write? You know, and for me, it's not inspiration that creates action. It's action that creates inspiration. Right. And so it's again, opposite of conventional wisdom, but motivation is the exact same thing. Motivation like confidence comes after you start moving. It's not motivation that gets you moving. Motivation is a byproduct. It kicks in and then it becomes, you know, a self-fulfilling prophecy or it becomes, it, it, it becomes more powerful, but you have to take the initiative yourself. You know, it's like you have to act initially with a lack of motivation and then once you start behaving, it's like confidence. It's successful behavior that creates confidence. It's not confidence that creates that sex, successful behavior. Confidence then helps later on. But at some point, you just have to start moving in the right direction. And then the other things like motivation and inspiration, um, confidence, those things start kicking in. And so, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, <laughs> someone's got to make a choice. You know what I mean? And then once they start moving in the right direction, then all the other benefits start kicking in. So when you look at this, let's just go to the book, the premise of the book. It's, you know, why willpower won't work. Is that something that was a, just kind of over time you began to see and recognize and, and then focused on, was it an epiphany? Where did it come from? Where, where did the experience come from? It was definitely not an epiphany. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was a developmental process. So when I first decided I wanted to do a PhD in psychology, I actually wanted to study willpower uh, because it's a very popular topic. Um, and, uh, you know, over time, I first off, becoming a foster parent was one. Um, when I was, so I grew up, my parents got divorced when I was 11. And when that happened, my life changed. You know, the divorce was really tough on my dad. He, uh, he ended up turning to different forms of pretty hard addictions that was very tough. He's since turned his life around, which is great. But, you know, my mom was a single mom working on trying to own a business and stuff like that. And so basically after my parents divorced, there was not any stability in my life. I barely graduated from high school. Um, and I find myself a year out of high school, pretty much doing nothing. I was playing World of Warcraft. Literally, I was playing video games 12 plus hours a day. Didn't really have a job. You know, my diet consisted of Mountain Dew and 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 pizza. And I think if most people looked at that that version of me, they would say that this kid has no motivation, you know, or this, you know. And, uh, you know, it's easy to judge a situation like that. I mean, if you literally, if I looked at the 19-year-old version of myself, even from my current vantage point, you know, it, it's you, you can sometimes lack compassion. Uh, what had happened is I became a product of a situation that I wasn't proud of and I didn't really know how to get out of it. Um, and I was settling in, you know, that's the thing is that you can, human beings are highly adaptive. We settle in, we adapt to our situations. I mean, even in the book, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, he talks about how the most shocking component of being in the concentration camps was how fast the shock and horror of what they were seeing became apathy. Like it just became dullness. It's like, you get to the point where you just see someone get shot and you don't even have any feelings. And so that shows how fast we can adapt to our environments. Um, and so that's what had happened to me. I had settled in and I had just decided that this is what life is, you know. And, um, and then I just really started to think about my life. 
I started running actually just even a little bit of time and just getting outside of that routine, getting outside my environment and just allowing myself some freshness. Um, it was during my runs that I really started to, uh, think about my life and about what I wanted to do. And so I ended up deciding I need to go away. I ended up going on a humanitarian mission across the country for a few years. And what was interesting is that almost immediately a flip switched on me. Like, so one of the things we talk about, you know, is the idea that people believe their personality is their identity when really what they're doing is they're acting in certain roles. Like right now you and I are on a podcast, you know, we're talking when I'm with my wife, I'm as a husband, when I'm with my kids, I'm with my father, we're in different roles all the time. Um, well, what was interesting is, is almost like a flip, a flip switch. I went from playing video games 12 to 18 hours a day to the next day. I had a different identity. I was a missionary. I was doing all sorts of service. I was working hard. It was like all of a sudden I was a different person. I was, I, I, and I could e- e- immediately become whoever I wanted to be in that different situation, in that different role, in that different environment. And I just made the choice that I wanted to be the most successful missionary in that mission. And like I became a leader. I did all sorts of stuff. I started reading good books. I started transforming. And that couldn't have happened had I stayed where I was. And so that was kind of like the first inclination that like, situation matters, that role matters, that identity is tied very tightly to where you're at and the situation you're in. And that when you change your situation, you can change your identity. Uh, And then obviously just studying self-improvement, even though we're, you know, most of the self-improvement I read is very individualistic, you know, there's still ideas of, you know, you're the product of the five people you spend the most time with. I mean, there's all these ideas that are very pervasive that your environment shapes you and that it's powerful. And then just studying psychology and becoming a foster parent and even just thinking about, you know, your faith. It's like, would you rather rely on your own power? Would you rather rely on your higher power? Would you rather rely on willpower or would you rather have why power? You know, having a powerful why is going to take you places that willpower could never take you. Like if you have if you have to rely on willpower, it's probably because you don't have a more powerful why. Once you have a why to live for, like they say, you'll do anyhow. You can bear anyhow if you have the why. And then from like a psychological behavioral perspective, I'd rather just outsource my desired behavior to an environment that that shapes that behavior. So to me, it was just all of these things where I just became like, I just I just saw this idea for what it was. Like this obsession with willpower to me is is a huge problem. And there's a lot of other psychologists who agree, you know. You know, from a different perspective, develop habits so you don't even have to rely on willpower. You know, it's just like, you know, the people who are really studying this stuff, you know, from a psychological perspective, say don't rely on willpower. It doesn't work. It, it depletes. It'll fail you every time. Well, I, I want to make a call out just for our listeners. You mentioned Victor Frankl, and, who wrote the book Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, my business partner gave me just recently uh, the uh, Tim Ferriss Tribe of Mentors, I think is his, is his new book. And I've been flipping through that really interesting one, but I would I venture to say that that is the number one book people reference to his question of what is the book that you have most given to other people. And it's brought me back and I need to go search for my copy again and, and read it again because that was so powerful. He's in such a dire circumstance and to overcome that. So I want to ask again about circumstance. So I asked you kind of some low hanging fruit issues about where are we missing it environmentally, but you obviously are, are putting a gigantic 
value on that. How radical, I can hear people feeling like, how radical do I need to go? I live in a home, I have a spouse, let's say, or, you know, and, and maybe kids and, and it, and it has these certain things, good and bad about it. I work somewhere. Uh, and a lot of people are, we have a lot of folks who are self-employed here, probably maybe a majority, but a lot of folks who are employees, they're in some place, maybe feel like they don't have a lot of control of that. And you're putting this massive value on what is or is not happening in there. And if they are to design this for their own success, to help foster their own success and not just depend on their willpower, which most so often are relying solely on that, how radical do we need to go? I mean, are there folks that you're talking to and saying, you know what, you have to get out of that relationship or you have to get out of that employee uh, role or that, or that work. Is there uh, a tipping point that we all have to look at and say, if you can, if you can get this far where you're at, great. If you can't, you need to do something radical. So here's my kind of, here's my response to that. Once you become, once your desire is to live fully congruently, you know, you have to realize that you and your environment are two parts of the same whole. Uh, in certain situations, obviously, yes, you probably should quit your job or leave that relationship. In others, though, you just it just needs to you need to start with just honest conversations. You know, what I mean, obviously, for example, my wife and I, like, we don't. It's not like you're never going to see exactly eye to eye with someone, and that's not actually what you should want. You know what I mean? Um, a lot of it's just deciding specific goals. Like for me, for example, my you know. When I'm at home, like my wife is like the exact wife I would choose when it comes to like my like my 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 home and my family and like you know we're talking about like this recovery environment. But like you should not expect one person to fulfill every role and need that you have. You know, and so for me, like I have lots of mentors in my writing career and in like my entrepreneurial stuff and they fulfill those roles that my wife could never fulfill. Uh, and so I think it's not being one dimensional about who you are. Like, again, who you are in one situation is different from who you are in another. And it's like, you know, you want to establish a home that resonates with your value system. And then you want to put yourself in situations that allow you the challenge and the growth in others, you know? So for me, I invest a lot of money, you know, and it started really small in the beginning, but now I'm investing more and more in mentorships and masterminds and skills and in relationships and opportunities, um, because I want to create that environment, um, you know, and so I think that I think that once a person becomes aware of how powerful it is, yeah, you you kind of got to think about you got to think about it on all levels, you know, because your environment and you are two parts of the same whole, and you can't permanently change yourself without changing your environment. You can't just desire some change in your head and then not translate that out in the real world. And the real world is your environment. So if you have some conflict inside your head and your environment's pushing against it. Either you got to kind of face the hard emotions and the hard truth that you might have to have some awkward conversations, you know? That's what Tim Ferriss said, speaking of which, you know, he said that your level of success can usually be measured by the amount of awkward conversations you're willing to have. If you're not willing to have an awkward conversation with your spouse about something that's going on, then you're probably not going to have a successful marriage. If you're not willing to have an awkward conversation with, you know, someone who's a prospect, like, you might miss that opportunity to get the sale. Like, you got to be willing to deal with those emotions and actually alter the situation, alter the environment. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I would say low and high levels, you got to really think about it. I mean, uh, prevention, kind of like going with your idea with, uh, I think you were talking about sugar, but I think the idea of prevention is so much easier than rehabilitation. So it's like, if you can prevent the damage from happening in the first place, 
so much easier than trying to fix a problematic situation. So looking at this issue of, of motivation, um, I, as amazing as I, I know that you are, you're probably human and you have those times of losing your motivation, even amongst all that you know and teach and, and, and research that you do. What are your, what are, what's a main go-to when you know that your motivation is lagging? Yeah, for sure. Uh, one is fitness. You know, if I'm having a, you know, and that may sound counter counter, but like literally like sometimes you just need to go get in your body. You know what I mean? And like when I just can't think or when like, uh, I go and I work out like that helps. Like number two is just like literally listen to your wisdom. Like if, uh, if you're not motivated, there's probably a reason either. Like there's something that's out of alignment. Like it's something that you don't want to be doing. Or, or there's something else, you know, you should be doing something else. There's some other priority that's, that's, and so I think, you know, giving yourself some space, I pull out my journal all the time. I'm a huge journaler. Uh, and in the book, I talk about having a sacred environment where you can go and kind of, you know, ponder, reflect, think, pray, meditate, journal, whatever it is you do. And I, I give myself space when I need clarity and motivation and I sit down and I write in my journal and I just write about what I'm experiencing. You know, the journal is one of the most powerful tools for figuring out your emotions, for thinking about, for getting clear. I mean, it's very powerful. And so I, you know, I spend a lot of time journaling, thinking. Sometimes it's just, you know, if I'm unmotivated, in a lot of ways it may be because I'm I'm out of alignment. And, and in order to get back into alignment, I focus on my core priorities, which is my family. And I spend time with them. Uh, and then, you know, I mean, it's really just the basic answers, you know, put your family first, go exercise, get in your journal and, and actually kind of hash things out and then listen to stuff like Zig Ziglar. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you just need to like listen to stuff like that and kind of put yourself back in the place and be like, oh yeah, you know what I mean? Listen to good content, you know what I mean? And uh, get yourself remotivated. But then at some point, you know, you have to start acting, you know, you got to start moving. And when you start moving forward, then the motivation re-kicks back in. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap us on something that you said that I think is is really significant. It's a lot to grapple with, I think, for all of us. And so the quote that, that I found from you is that faith is action and thus also power. Faith and fear cannot coexist in the same person at the same time. That's a pretty significant statement as we look at ourselves and go, okay, so you're telling me that if I have fear in here, I cannot be, they can't coexist. That almost feels overwhelming. So uh, break it down a little bit for us. Was that in the book, by the way? You know, I'm going to give credit to, uh, <laughs> to Lori on the Ziegler team. She pulled out some quotes from you uh, or that she found out about you. I don't know if that was in the book or where she. I was like, wow, I don't know if that one's in the book, but I have said that before in an article. So here's the idea. So basically, here's how I look at it. We're, we've talked a lot about environment in this book. We've talked a lot about how to use your environment. Archimedes once said, you know, give me a lever strong enough, you know, and a fulcrum to place it on and I'll move the world. He's talking about you know, leveraging his, his external environment. He didn't say that I could will my way to move the world. He said, give me a lever. Um, so we're in this, in this whole conversation, we're talking about the power of situation and environment. But for me, security has to always be internal. Your internal security, your faith in yourself or in your higher power or in your goals or in your values or in the cause in which you're fighting for, uh, your security can never be external. So even though your environment shapes you and it's very powerful, um, 
you have to have the security in yourself because when you have security in yourself, then you can actually do stuff out in the real world. You can change your environment. You can change your situation. You can change the situation of the world. You can actually go out and be proactive. And I think most people, even though they're, in, they're individualistic, even though they put the pressure on themselves with willpower, their security is actually exactly where it shouldn't be. Their security is external. The security is in a paycheck or in other people's opinions. And so for me... The environment is very powerful and it's something we need to use and it's something that's that's a big part of us, but our security has to be inside. And so security and freedom are two very different things, you know, and uh, I think the only way to be free is to have the environment that allows you to act the way you want to. And the only way to do that is, do that is if, if your security is inside you and not outside of you. It's a paradox, but it's, you know, you got to have that internal security. You've got to have that trust on the inside. When you do that, then you actually can be proactive. Then you can be creative. Then you can operate with faith and trust that the best things will happen. Well, hey, I got to say on this, first, you know, thank you for, for doing what you do to bring this message to us. I always hear great messages in our shows here and in the books. A lot of times it's a great new flavor, a new perspective on an issue. But I got to say, this is just a new message. In a lot of ways, it is. It's not a different way of looking at it. This is a very new message that uh, I want to dig into it. I've been taking notes. Uh, I want my family to dig into this, and I'm incredibly honored to bring this to the Ziegler audience. We could talk for the rest of the day on this. Folks, go get the book, obviously. It's just come out, and it is, I think it's it's going to be something that's it's significant because it is, yeah, again, it's not just a contrarian view. It's taking a perceived truth and and flipping it over and saying we are we are hitting it the wrong route so uh thank you for the time today and thank you for bringing us this message absolutely man really glad to be here with you kevin well hey i hope you are pumped after hearing that that you are more hopeful um i'm positive that you are and folks if you got value here the most valuable way to let us know is leaving a review in itunes and connect with Ben Hardy and check out the book at BenjaminHardy.com. Coming up next in show 553, we go behind the scenes with Ben and follow the Ziegler Wheel of Life, walking through Ben's challenges and healthy habits in the seven spokes. Some highlights, he puts a huge priority on sleep for himself, but also for his three newly adopted kids and tells about what the difference is he's seen in them health-wise and positive-wise. Uh, he loves working out and listening to great messages on audiobooks to stay mentally strong. He works to put himself into groups of people where he is the dumbest in the room. Uh, even in a year where he only made $12,000, he still invested in himself and shares some amazing stories. Spiritually, he's just fervently seeking truth, not religion, from all people. You, you'll really enjoy this show, friends. Until then, thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together. Together.